Let's pray. Lord God, speak to us now. Amen. Uh, do you know that uh, it is predicted in the United States, uh, scenarios vary, over the next 10 years, between 500 and 650,000 Americans are going to die from opioid overdoses. Fentanyl, heroin, Oxycontin, you name it, anything in that kind of opioid family is killing people, not just in America. I just, uh, I, the stats are quite a prominent America. I just read a New York Times article on this, looking at the crisis. Uh, lots of young people are dying of overdoses, uh, are medicating themselves to death, uh, pr- people in the ages of 20 to 30. Uh, the opioid crisis in a decade is going to kill more people than HIV AIDS has killed uh, in its entire existence. It's going to kill more people in America than guns and uh, breast cancer and prostate cancer. And that same crisis we are starting to see here in Australia and all around the developed world. And you say, what on earth does that have to do with Hebrews chapter 12? Well, here's what it has to do with this. Our culture of the last hundred years, and in particularly since the 1960s, our culture is, I think, without doubt, the worst culture in the world at equipping us to deal with hardship and suffering. We have no intellectual or spiritual resources of any substance culturally anymore to help us deal with suffering and hardship. We are brought up to believe that life is fundamentally about our comfort, our personal peace, our self-actualization, we're brought up to believe that, that, that it is realistic to expect a life of uninterrupted comfort and peace and joy. And that any suffering is a violation of our human right. It's an unthinkable interruption in our good life. Uh, I met recently with a, a, a lovely, lovely lady uh, who... Um, has had a great tragedy in her family and um, spent the afternoon with her a while back. And she is not a person of, of faith yet, though we had a wonderful conversation about faith. She said, since this tragedy struck their family five years ago, they have tried, she said, uh, my husband and I have worked incredibly hard to create a bubble of happiness around our family. Now, beautiful people, articulate, educated, and wealthy, and it's kind of worked, but then I said to her, well, how's that working for you now? And the reason I was sitting across the table from her was the bubble had been pierced by reality, and through a beautiful Christian friend she had, the circle had been joined, and they'd said, you should talk to Mark, and I was there talking across the table, because, listen, as much as, as much as we're able to cr- construct a bubble of happiness around ourselves through our wealth and our education and our competence, reality bursts our bubble all the time. And in the end, the deepest, most profound answer our culture has for us is medication. <laughs> we, we don't know how to deal with it. So actually, the rational response is change your brain chemistry to try and deal with the pain. 
So what's that got to do with Hebrews 12? Well, listen, Hebrews 12 is one of the great texts that provides for you and for me the resources to deal with suffering, with life as it is. The whole book of Hebrews was written to Christians in the first century who were, who were suffering for their faith. They hadn't yet lost their lives for their faith, but they were suffering. And the book of Hebrews is written to them to give them intellectual and spiritual and community and existential means to hang on to Jesus and even more than just hang on to Jesus, to flourish as human beings, even in the face of great suffering. So I think for our culture and for us, there's probably no greater book right now in this cultural moment than this book. I've certainly found that as I've been teaching my way through. It's been profoundly encouraging to me because I see that same attitude in the church And I see that same attitude seeps into my heart that I believe and we believe that we deserve lives of personal peace and comfort. And what we do with our religion sometimes is we turn Jesus into a metaphysical opioid. And we say, well, the world is difficult and hard, but come to Jesus and he'll fix it all up for you. (laughs) And that's true, isn't it? But it's also profoundly not true. So we're going to look at, uh, at, at ways to survive and thrive and deal with suffering. And really what I want to talk about is how to suffer. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Aren't you glad you came to church? Yes, I could have been doing Pilates and going and having a lovely coffee and smashed avocado. And, you know, but instead, I'm here learning how to suffer. And church is a great, uh, a great crucible to work this out in practice, isn't it? Um, for all kinds of reasons. How to suffer. We're going to look at three things. Firstly, what you've got to do if you've got to suffer well uh, is you've got to reset expectations. Uh, so if the dominant metaphor for life is, uh, you know... Um, Maybe not so much here in Australia, but certainly in most of the rest of the world. Dominant metaphor life is it's a beautiful cruise. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet on a lovely cruise where all your needs are met. And you travel from destination to destination with a lovely group of people, totally in control, and everything just flows and works, right? That's what we like. But what does Hebrews say life is like? What does Hebrews say life is like? Well, reset your expectations because it says life is uh, an agonizing race. Life is an agonizing race. Here's uh, what he says. Um, Let us run with perseverance. What? The cruise journey marked out for us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And the word race comes, by the root word there is agon, from which we get the word agony. And in view might be, in fact, the, uh, the pentathlon, oh, sorry, the heptathlon in the ancient games that finished with a, like a 
primitive UFC boxing, grappling, wrestling match where they strapped their hands up with leather uh, gloves that were designed to inflict bloody damage on your opponents. So you, you work through this competition, and at the end of it, you're, you're face-to-face, toe-to-toe with your opponents, wanting to inflict bloody damage on each other. And the Bible says, listen, that is life. It's a race. It's hard. It's bloody. It's brutal. It is an agonizing struggle. Wow. Wow. (laughs) In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The assumption is that is quite likely the destination to which you're heading. So what does that mean? Well, reset your expectations matter enormously, don't they? So change, if we're to to survive and thrive as followers of Jesus, we have to look at this world and reset our expectations. a, A whole bunch of things follow from this metaphor. Suffering in this life is normal. It's just normal, man. It's part of the deal. The only way to avoid suffering in this life is to avoid birth. Because once you're in, you're in. You're on the race, you're running, so medicate yourself away if you want to try, but even that won't really help. Uh, (laughs) And what that means is, look, you're not the exception if you're suffering. One of the dangers of our social media and our carefully curated public personas is we can believe that we're the only people who are suffering. Uh, We're the only Christians who are struggling. We're the only people for whom life hasn't worked out perfectly and beautifully. And and look, one of the things suffering does is it does actually cut us off from people. Suffering does focus us inwards, and it can can distance people, but, but we're all in this. One of the privileges and extraordinary pains of my job, and one of the things that sometimes I go... Lord, I wish I did something else, was that um, being, being at the center of a Christian community like this, I don't just get to feel my own pain and struggle. <laughs> you, get to, you get to touch hundreds and over the years, thousands of people's pain and struggle in this race. And let me tell you, I've never met anyone whose life is not full of agonizing struggle in various forms. It's not an exception. It's entirely normal. Um, It's, uh, as we'll see, it's not a result of our sin. It's not a result that, that it doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. It doesn't mean we have to give up. In fact, suffering, uh, when we think about this metaphor as a dominant metaphor, means that sufferings are in some way necessary. Right? Because assuming... Assuming all the givens of human free will, uh, there is in some way no other way. This is, I want to be very careful how I say this. This is the best that God is able to do with a community of people with free will, which he respects enormously. And what happens is that suffering becomes the crucible within which God forms our characters and shapes us into our eternal destinies to become what we were always meant to be. You say, what's the proof for that, Mark? Well, earlier on in Hebrews it said, even Jesus himself 
uh, learned obedience through what he suffered. And if God himself, if the cost for God himself to heal this world was for God to suffer, for God to run this race, to enter fully into this agonizing struggle of human existence, if that is the way of Jesus, if that is the way of God, then uh, what right do I have to think that I get a better life than God got? I, and I, this perplexes me sometimes. I would think to myself, oh Lord, why, why is it that there, there seems to be in life no one who has ever reached any form of greatness, intellectual greatness, artistic greatness, sporting greatness, moral greatness, relational greatness, spiritual greatness. You, you never get to a point of greatness without an agonizing struggle, do you? You know? The agonizing struggle of playing your scales for hours and hours and hours and hours while all your friends are outside playing and you're just there playing your scales or you've got a bit of wood stuck under your chin and you're just doing your scales and you're doing that for countless hours. That's the path to greatness musically, isn't it? Athletic greatness, you know, no one wakes, Usain Bolt didn't just wake up and go, I can run 100 meters faster than anyone in the world. Or maybe he did. But he also, he struggled, he worked, he trained. That's just the way. And so it is spiritually and in terms of our character. I've, I don't know, have you ever met anyone who, uh, who when you're in their presence, they, they just radiate life and love? And you go, ah, oh, you're just drawn to them. And have you ever met anyone like that who hasn't suffered deeply along the way? You just don't. They don't exist. The people who spend their lives trying to avoid suffering and pain never, ever amount to very much. It's, they just don't. I know that personally because I'm not a very good musician. Why? Because I just wasn't willing to put it. I'm not, I'm not willing to suffer enough to become really great at music or even moderately competent, to be honest. <laughs> but where it really counts in terms of our souls. It's also true. We'll never never begin to be formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ unless we're prepared to fight this agonizing struggle, to run this race in his footsteps that he did. Uh, Here's the other thing about suffering, and you'll, you'll get this, though it is somewhat hard to explain. When, as we get weaker, so we get stronger, don't we? Think about it. Um, some of you exercise here intentionally, I'm sure. You know, if you go to the gym or if you run a race, if you go to the gym and you're, you know, I don't know, maybe imagine someone else here, you're doing, you're doing bicep curls, you know. Um, what happens the more curls, the more bicep curls you do, what happens to your biceps? Do they get stronger and stronger? as you're doing the curls, they get weaker and weaker. But as they're getting weaker and weaker, what's really happening to them? Well, on the other side of it, they're going to be stronger and stronger. That's the training effect, right? In any athletic endeavor. Like you have to, if you're going to run a race, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to get weaker and weaker the further you run, the more you train. But on the other side of the training, you're going to be fitter and healthier and stronger. 
So there is something about the way the world works. When we understand this metaphor that the book of Hebrews gives us, that means though, though as we suffer, we get weaker and weaker and weaker, actually, as we follow Jesus in the suffering in a way that we will see in a moment, on the other side of that, we're actually getting stronger and stronger and stronger. The very thing that we think and that we feel in every bit of our body yells out to God, this is crushing me, this is killing me, that is the thing that will make us great and glorious and Christ-like. That's what the metaphor teaches us. So, uh, reset your expectations. Reset them. I was, uh, you know, and we have to do this all the time because everything in our life sets us up with the wrong expectations for life. It, almost every bit of media you consume, every social media you look at, is going to work against the expectation and the metaphor as life as an agonizing struggle for us. So reset your expectations. The second thing you've got to do uh, is reframe your experience. What do I mean by that? Uh, well, if we look at our experience of suffering, what can happen when we suffer is we can think that it's a sign that God has abandoned us. Well, if I was a genuine Christian, I wouldn't be suffering, would I? Which is a, an underlying behind that is the assumption that um, that real Christians don't suffer and that suffering is kind of a cosmic karma or God reaching out to smack us around the head because of something we've done wrong, right? So we can feel like when we suffer, it's a sign of God's abandonment or our own mess or our own stuff up. Um, and uh, it's a sign of, of God being vindictive or out of control. Uh, and the book of Hebrews changes the metaphor here from the that set your expectations, embrace suffering as, as, um, as an life as an agonizing struggle, then says actually, well, when you're in the midst of it, here's what you need to do. You need to reframe your expectations and see suffering as an opportunity or an occasion of fatherly or parental discipline and uh, growth and care. So look at this. Have you verse five, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that it, that addresses you as a father addresses his son or daughter? It says, "My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens everyone He accepts as a son. Endure. Look at this. Endure hardship as discipline." God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but what does God do? God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. However, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Uh, do you think the writer's trying to make a point? 
about how we reframe suffering? <sighs> There's a problem there, isn't there, though? The problem is uh, our often very negative associations with the word discipline. Because we think of discipline very often as essentially uh, punitive or retributive. Um, you, you discipline is about, you know, a parent, well, not, you're allowed to do that anymore, really, uh, giving your child a smack. When I was at school, discipline was being caned by the headmaster with a great big long six-foot, you know, bamboo prison cane, and you'd have to bend over, and he'd whack you on the backside, and you'd have to stand up and say, thank you, sir, and then make polite small talk. I remember that. It was bizarre. I, I got caned once after writing a science exam, and, and the deputy head who did the caning was my science teacher, so you bend over, and he smacks you and, and your back it was so painful and I'm standing there he says oh so leech how did you find the science exam <laughs> I'm experiencing physics and biology at the moment there's ruptured capillaries all over my butt and big welts emerging and you know we think of discipline like that but you know what the the, the root word under this um, is actually paideia uh, from which we get the phrase, that the English words pediatrics and pediatricians. And the understanding of paideia, discipline, is it's fatherly care. It's a father bringing to bear on that child what that child needs so that they can flourish and grow. Now, look, sometimes, to be honest, discipline is not pleasant. Show me any three-year-old or two-year-old who thinks that discipline is pleasant. Or any five-year-old or any 15-year-old who thinks that discipline, withholding some good thing, bringing some structure, bringing some consequences into your life, they don't get it. They, you know, you go, no, this is awful, this is terrible. Uh, we've all seen this. Um, we've all lived the dream. You know, toddler in supermarket. Toddler wants sugar. Uh, we as a culture are committed to poisoning ourselves and so, but highly addictive. Toddler goes, I want this, you say no. Toddler has meltdown on the ground and, ah, and you feel like the world's worst parent in the universe and everybody's looking at you and, and everyone's just looking at you going, man, thank you, Jesus, that I'm not you right now. Um, but you know, um, Suffering is a sign of God's fatherly care. And we need to reframe that. And particularly, this is what can be even worse. There's a, a peculiar form of suffering that comes upon Christians. That is, as a direct result of that Christian faith. So even more problematic than just the, the normal indignities and sufferings of life, of old age and cancer and war and famine and disease, there's the particular suffering that comes, I've been good I've trusted God, I've lived for Jesus, and then I still suffer. Is this because God hates me? Is this because God has abandoned me? And even in that specific form, Hebrews is saying, no, it's a sign of God's fatherly care for us. Suffering is God's way of getting his greatness and glory into our souls. How does that? So, what does that mean? Well, uh, if you reframe every, every bit of hardship you go through, every bit of conflict, 
every bit of relational pain, you say, okay, Lord, this is an opportunity for me to lean into you and lean into what lessons you are working in me through this, right? Uh, I sometimes say this, or I always say this, when I talk to people who I'm preparing to marry or when I'm talking to young parents. I say, listen, here's the thing you need to know about God's plan for marriage. Marriage is not about giving you a life of personal comfort and peace. Marriage is war. Marriage is suffering. (laughs) Wow. Because, Because we're rubbing up against somebody else. And look, it's wonderful and it's glorious and there's brilliant things. But because it's part of life and God's primary agenda is to get his greatness and glory into us, he puts us around other people. And if when you get married and you discover that it's hard and that it's difficult and the other person's annoying and the war is in you with your own selfishness, if, if you think that marriage is there to make you happy, you're nuts. Marriage is there to make you Christ-like, I say to people. So reframe the pain of marriage because it's wonderful and glorious, but oh my goodness, don't we have the capacity to hurt and frustrate those who are closest to us? So don't see that as a sign that your marriage is over. See it as a sign that God is at work. And the more pain there is, the more work he can do in you. It's the same with parenting, right? I find it, uh, I find it astounding. We've, we've turned babies into a sort of a lifestyle accessory to, as the sort of final journey on our self-actualization. Well, I've, I've, you know, I went to school and I went to university and I've traveled and I've done my thing now and I've been living with my partner for a time and now I'm in my mid-30s or late-30s. I've accomplished, I've ticked off all these boxes and now what I really need is a, is a baby. And I'm like, are you nuts? You're freaking nuts. Babies are teenagers in waiting. Like God's plan for kids, it's just another stretch on the agonizing struggle of life. And when you experience that, it's about God shaping you. You don't, don't, don't rail against your kids or rail against God or feel like you're a failure. You go, actually, the struggle is by design. And when you lean into it with God, you know what? You discover that you're shaped into the likeness of Jesus who lived exactly that kind of life. So you reframe it, and it changes everything. So you reset expectations, you reframe. And then thirdly, what you've got to do is you've got to run. And you've got to run in three ways. You've got to run with humility. You've got to run with obedience. And uh, you've got to run with a relentless self evaluation. Let's think about those three. Uh, First thing is you've got to run with humility because listen, have you ever thought about this? Despair. Despair is an act of profound arrogance. Isn't it? When you get to the point where you go, I cannot see what God is up to here. I just give up. It's all too hard. What are you really saying? You're saying, because I can't see what God is up to here. 
because I can't see the good that might come out of this. There can't be any good that's going to come out of this. God can't be involved in this. It's an act of great arrogance. So the only way to run this race and to reframe your expectations and to suffer well is to do it with enormous humility that says while you weep, while you struggle, you know, I don't know. I don't know why. I, but the fact that I don't know why doesn't mean that God isn't involved, right? And that God isn't, doesn't know why. And that God can't bring something good out of it. There is, I mean, most of the, for me, I don't know, I, there is so much in my life that I just don't understand. I look back on my own experience and I go, why, Lord? I just, really? I had to go through that? And, and as I've gone through life, I've talked to so many people whose lives are so broken and full of pain and heartache. And you go, why, Lord? I was talking with someone this week who's, who's having an extraordinarily painful time. And again, they're not yet a person of faith. And they say, well, you know, <laughs> this is someone who'd lost, uh, lost a child, a baby. She said, oh, I've heard all these people say, you know, well, there's a reason for that. Don't worry. There'll be, there's a reason all things happen. You know, there's a reason. And she looked at me across the table and she said, Mark, what, do, you, do you think there's a reason? What do you think the reason could be? I said, I have no idea. I have no idea. Wouldn't have a clue. But the fact that I don't have a clue and you don't have a clue doesn't mean that God doesn't have a clue. That's how you run with great humility. We don't know everything. It's wrong to expect that we could. Uh, we're, we're to run with humility. We're to run with obedience, aren't we? Um, obedience. So, uh, look at verse 7. It says this we're just to endure. Um, we're to endure. Don't. Hardship. This is not a recipe for saying suffering is fun. Please don't let me, don't hear me, don't hear me saying, well, suffering is good. God is, God is not a sadist and I'm not encouraging us to be masochists. But when we suffer, the Bible says endure. Don't budge. Don't give up. Don't quit following Jesus. There is this thing uh, that, w- that sabotages our efforts at greatness that the, psycho- that the psychologists and those who study this thing, they call it moral license. And we grant ourselves moral license all the time. Here's how moral license works. It says, because I'm doing well in this area, I can do whatever I like in that area. Right? How that typically works is, I go to... So, so, uh, I go to the gym, I have a really good workout, and then on the way home, I reward myself with a treat, right? So, uh, or I, I, you know, so here we go, I've done really well here, I've looked after my body physically, I've worked out, now that gives me license, I give myself license to poison myself with sugar, right? So, uh, it's a little silly. We do it all the time. It's very, it's hardwired into us, this granting of moral license. How this works out in suffering is this. We go, well, I am suffering here. 
It hurts relentlessly, endlessly, deeply. And because I'm suffering here, I don't have to pray anymore. I don't have to care for the poor. I don't have to be interested in other people's sufferings anymore because I'm suffering and just surviving is really good for me, so I'll give myself license to run from God, to run from what is right, to be selfish. That's what happens. Physical, emotional suffering actually does not give us an automatic pass to be a jerk or to give up on what makes life good and wonderful, namely serving others, being interested in others, right? That's the way of the world. So endure suffering. Uh, do the right thing. Do the next thing. You see, here's what we do. Sufferings, we, don't, we, we stop reading our Bibles. We stop giving our money away. We stop caring for others. We stop coming to church. We stop, we stop opening our hearts to others. And we think that's okay because we're having such a hard time. And that's no way to endure suffering. The way to endure it is to endure it, is to just, man, we're all in this together. And greatness won't come by giving up. We've got to keep going. There is no other option but to keep going. And then the third thing is we need to, as we suffer, do a radical self-evaluation of ourselves as we go along. So it says, this, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The race is hard enough without loading ourselves up with stuff that makes it even harder. Right? One commentator I said, I, I read said this, and it's a little gender specific. He said, well, actually it might have been a woman writing this commentary. She said, well, would anyone go to the gym in high heels and a ball gown? You wouldn't. You'd throw off your high heels. You'd throw off your ball gown. You'd put on your active wear. That's just to come to church, right? Uh, you know, you, you, you get rid of anything that will make it harder. The sin that so easily entangles self-pity, unbelief, selfishness, whatever it is that is going to stop you from running the race, just get rid of it. And what I love about this is it puts the onus back on us. It's very empowering. It says no matter what you're going through, it's up to you. You, you throw it off. Throw off your Facebook account that so easily entangles you by creating false expectations, carefully curated worlds of, of beauty and uh, you know, holidays and perfect children and aging gracefully and all that stuff and doesn't show you the raw indignities and pain of the struggle of life. So if that's what's causing you to, you know, if that's making it harder for you to suffer well, get rid of it. Get rid of it. If you're surrounded by inauthentic friends who keep telling you that what, 
you know, what you really does, you deserve a good, better than this. You deserve a good life. I mean, honest to goodness, I, years ago, I sat with this guy and his wife. And uh, he was a baby boomer. What more can I say? He was a baby boomer. He made a lot of money, raised two beautiful daughters. He's a good guy. And I sat with him, and I kid you not, he said, well, now is the time for me. If you've got friends like that, just limit the amount of time you spend with them because they're toxic. Like, unless you can influence them, don't hang out with them because that is a sin that easily entails because something in my heart went, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. And can I come on your yacht as well so I can have some me time, you know? I'd love to be entangled with your, you know? No, it's like trying to run a marathon race in high heels and a ball gown. Like it's so just, I don't know, that's how to suffer well. Do a, do a relentless evaluation. What is it in my life? What am I holding on to that is making it hard, difficult for me to follow Jesus in this season of life? And get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't include spouse and kids, by the way, just putting that out there. Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's, if, you, if you're hearing that, that is a mishearing of what I'm saying. <laughs> so how do you do that? How do, how do we actually do it? Where do you find the power to do this, to, to suffer well, to go through this process of resetting expectations, reframing your experience, evaluating, self-evaluating, throwing things aside, um, uh, doing everything that we've talked about of obeying and of being humble? Well, here's where you get it. Verse 2, uh, verse 1. Uh, you, you, you look, you realize, as we run this race, sisters and brothers, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. The whole of Hebrews 11 is this chapter of people who have, uh, who have run this race ahead of us. And the metaphor is this. I don't, the, metaphor, the, the image is, is like this, that you've run the marathon, you've competed, you've been out there. And like you're, it's at the Olympic Games and you're coming in the final, the final bit of the marathon. Where do, you, where do you run the last bit of the marathon in the Olympics? In a great big stadium. So you come into the stadium and the cloud of witnesses as you run, as you finish this race, you look up and all around you are women and men of faith who have run this race, who have suffered, who have endured with humility and obedience and have gone all the way to the end. And they're all around you and they are cheering you on and they're saying, yeah, Mark, one more step, buddy. One more step. You can do it. You can do it, right? Endure. Keep on going. Get to the end. And all around you are people cheering. And if you want power to get to the end, look to those cloud of witnesses. Another way of understanding it is the power of social networks. Do you know that uh, if, if the friends of your friends are obese, you are more likely to be obese. If the friends of your friends smoke, you are more likely to smoke. There are, there's this power of, of networks, of relationships that affect us. In our world, if the, if the people we look to are just our peers here in Balmain and in Roselle and in Sydney who are all affluent and comfortable and life's going swimmingly. If that's our cloud of witnesses, we're done for. There is no power in that. But listen, 
You want power to endure and follow Jesus in your light and momentary troubles. Read some stories about the persecuted church in North Korea. See that our current cloud of witnesses are people who are being imprisoned in labor camps in North Korea for their faith and being worked to death. Read the stories of the persecuted church under, under Soviet rule. In our generation, people like us who were sent to gulags and tortured and killed for their faith in Jesus. And look at them, and they are in the stands, and they are clapping you on. And so when you look at them and you go, man, it's so hard to take the next step because here in Balmain I'm a little sad and I'm struggling a bit and life hasn't given me quite the career I wanted And maybe I've got a few aches and pains that the medication can't quite grapple with. And maybe church is a bit difficult. My kids are a bit grumpy and my husband's a bit whatever. Look to those guys and go, what kind of a moron am I to think about giving up with these little troubles when they lost their lives, were tortured for their faith? That's the cloud of witnesses. Look at the cloud of witnesses in, in Nigeria, northern Nigeria, where, where their daughters are being stolen by Islamic insurgents and forcibly converted and married off. And their villages are being torched. Look at Christians in the Middle East who are being driven out of their millennia-old homelands. Look at them and go, of course I can continue. They're in the stands. They're cheering you on. They're going, man, we got to the end and it was worth it. So Mark, put one foot in front of the other and get to the finish line, buddy. (laughs) Yes. And then most powerfully of all, not only do we look to the, the cloud of witnesses in the stands, where else do we look? Well, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's run the race ahead of us. He's run that race for us. And why did he do it? He did it for the joy set before him. He did it for the joy set before him. Where will the power come? Well, the power to endure comes because of the joy that lies at the end of the race. If you persevere with Jesus the joy that you will inherit for all eternity will make your greatest sufferings light and momentary. See, what was the joy that was set before Jesus? Think of of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity in a community of perfect love and joy and peace. And yet there was another joy, a deeper joy that still lay ahead of Jesus that took him to the cross. What do you think that was? It was the joy of having us in heaven with him, enjoying the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was the greater joy. That was the greater joy that took Jesus to the cross. And so... Hebrews says to you and to me, listen, fix your eyes on Jesus and live for that greater joy just as he did. The Christian life is not motivated by by bare duty. Just endure, get through it and because it's right. It's a no. We do this like anyone in any athletic competition in any of life. We do it for the prize at the end, don't we? Here's what C.S. Lewis in his uh, very famous sermon, uh, The Weight of Glory, says this. 
Uh, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We don't live for infinite eternal joy. That's the power. We look at Jesus who gave up all that joy so that you and I could inherit it with him. When you're running a a marathon race, when you're running a really long distance race, um, or any act of great endurance, there are two ways you can get joy, aren't there? What are they? So say around most... The, the research I've read, if you're doing a marathon, between the 30 and the 34-kilometer mark of a 42-kilometer race, your body actually starts breaking down, and uh, it's enormously painful. And, uh, and at that point, when, when, when your body's screaming out to stop, uh, there's two ways you can go for joy. You can get joy out of that race, aren't there? What are they? You can stop, and you can finish. When you stop, it feels fantastic, doesn't it? But what is the joy of stopping compared to the joy of finishing? It's nothing, really. (laughs) And so the power to endure and to suffer well comes from living for the joy of finishing. Of finishing well. I'll tell you the thing that's kept me going uh, in life, amongst some other things, but... I mean, I have, this, I have this dream, and it's kind of a bit of an amalgam of biblical imagery, imagery and stories, that, that as I follow Jesus, one day, there is going to come a day when I die, and, uh, and I'm going to be walking up these, this massive, exquisite, extraordinary avenue that's gold, or more beautiful than gold, And on every side around me are going to be people just cheering and and crying and dancing for joy as they see me. I'm going to walk up this street paved with gold and I'm going to look out and I'm going to see there's my 95-year-old Jewish grandma who became a follower of Jesus. And she's healed and she's restored and she's so excited that I've come home to be with her forever. And my army's going to be there and she's just going to be, Mark, you made it. And I'm going to look there, and, and there's, going to be, there's going to be some of the beautiful people who've, you know, the woman who came out of drug addiction and the sex industry, whose life was saved just because in God's plan we were in her life at the right time. And she's going to be there, and she's going to be dancing and singing, saying, Mark, you've done it as well. You got here. And there's going to be thousands of people around who've got there. And they're going to be so excited that I've made it. And as I come around the corner, there, coming down these streets of gold towards me. There is going to be the most radiant, extraordinary, exquisite human person. Glowing, filling every horizon of my being. And as I walk towards this being, there is going to be my Lord coming to me with hands outstretched. Nail marks in his hands. The big gash in his side where the spear went in and my God and my Savior is going to come towards me and tears of joy are going to be streaming down his face and my Jesus is going to throw his arms around me and go, my son, well done, good and faithful servant. You made it, you're here. 
And in that moment, every bit of suffering and pain, every bit of brokenness, every tear I've shed, everything that has gone wrong in this broken, miserable world, all of that will just drop away. joy that is set before us. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, may you give us a vision of this joy, of this life that is to come. And may you may you graciously give us everything we need to hold on to you until that time. We ask this in your name, Jesus.